This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Christy Schreiber, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. Today, we begin a three-part series on Albert Camus' most widely translated and perhaps his most read book, La Strangère. How did I, did I butcher that for the French? <laughs> L'étranger. L'étranger. I didn't even come close. You know, which in English has been translated the outsider as well as the stranger. And, you know, both apply and they apply well, which we'll talk about that more in episode three. You know, the initial uh, critical reception to the novel was mixed. But after World War II, as well as an aggressive marketing campaign for its first English translation, the book took off. Uh, It was a critical success as well as a commercial one. And Camus' book today is translated in over 60 languages and has sold over 6 million copies. Well, it's definitely a favorite with teenagers as well, although I would say that most don't really want to sit around and talk about absurdism or existentialism as a general (laughs) rule. Uh, They can just relate to it. It's easy to read. In fact, a lot of high school students will read it in French for the obvious reason that they can read it in French. Uh, The language is deliberately simplified to some of the most basic verb tenses. Camus wrote for everyone, not just for everyone to read it, but to express the condition of every human who engages the world. And although the language is simple, do not be deceived. There is nothing simple about this text. It's intimidating. Wow. Uh, It is intimidating, and not just because it asks questions that are difficult, but because it doesn't allow you to answer questions with anything like a cliche or or a simple answer. You know, in fact, for Camus to do so uh, was to commit philosophical suicide. Uh, it is to give up on life itself and to become the Merceau of uh, part one uh, or not be the protagonist of your own life, so to speak. But in all of its grimness on the surface, um, Camus is not a dark guy, literally or metaphorically. I mean, his favorite symbol, uh, at least in this book, is ironically the sun. And he wouldn't like the word hopeful because that that goes against his worldview, but he might like the phrase 
defiant against darkness. Yes, I I think he would. But before we get into the paradox, which is the thinking and writing of Albert Camus, let's talk about this man who managed to be the second youngest to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, and that was in 1957. Well, as an aside, who was the youngest? Rupert Kipling, and he did it in 1907 at the age of 41. Camus, by the way, was 44. And seems to me uh, he was like more surprised than anybody that he'd won. He comes across, if you read what he said about it, kind of embarrassed and very humbly said that if he'd had the vote, he wouldn't have given it to him, but to somebody <laughs> else. Uh, I love the fact, too, and this is my favorite thing about it, that he immediately wrote a letter to one of his elementary school teachers back in Algeria. This is what he had to say. When I heard the news, my first thought after my mother was of you. The name of the teacher, by the way, uh, that's getting this shout out is a man by the name of Monsieur Germain. Without you, without the affectionate hand you extended to the small, poor child that I was, without your teaching and example, none of this would have happened. I can't help but be charmed as a teacher. It's just endearing. And it's what Everyone wants to hear, and someday if I have a student who wins the Nobel Prize for Literature, I hope they say that about me. (laughs) Mm, Well, of course. Anyway, I mentioned he's from Algeria because that's such an important detail, in my mind, for understanding him as a person. And although it's arguable in critical circles that understanding context is not necessarily important to understanding a book... Uh, this case, I think worldview is extremely important. Uh, yes, some would call that rhetorical context. Well, I think they would. But we need to know something about this place, which a lot of people don't know. Algeria is the largest country in Africa, if you just want to talk about total area. True. Um, you know, but it's large by world standards uh, as well. It's the 10th largest country in the world. It's the world's largest Arabic country. It's in North Africa, uh, Tunisia, where part of Star Wars was filmed, is on one side. And Morocco, where Casablanca was set, is on the other side. Speaking of Casablanca, that was released two years after Camus published The Stranger. So if you want to kind of visualize, you know, the age, that they may give you some visual context. But Gary, tell us a little bit about this place that Camus called home the place where the stranger is set, and the place that held Camus' heart for his entire life. Of course. Um, Algeria, historically, has an extremely long and rich history, dating back remarkably to 200,000 B.C., but uh, I'm guessing you're not interested in going that far back. Uh, No, I'd say that pretty much eclipses Camus, Homer, Sophocles, anyone we've ever written about at all. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Well, uh, as you would expect, as with every other part of Africa, Algeria experienced uh, European colonialism. And by 1848, nearly all of Algeria was French. And just like we saw with the American experience, many Europeans who were having trouble in Europe or looking for a place to find some upward mobility looked to migrate to this new colony. And and why not? If you are a struggling French man or woman, I mean, Algeria is beautiful and it's warm. It has beaches. There was a lot of allure. And Camus' great-grandparents were part of this movement. Uh, These French Europeans who came to Algeria in search of a better life were called pied noirs or Blackfeet. 
But uh, just as we saw in our series, Things Fall Apart, you know, colonialism it takes a toll on indigenous populations. And European colonial governments didn't treat local peoples equally or even respectfully, although they were technically French citizens. And, you know, in the colonial system, Piedmont's dominated government as well as the wealth of Algeria. This, uh, of course, you know, went on during Camus' life, and obviously he had ample opportunity from his earliest days to kind of watch the abuses of the system from all sorts of angles. And his views on how these inequalities should be solved eventually made him antagonistic to both the far right as well as the far left. He offended everybody. Yeah, I've read his views and what people thought of him. And at first pass, I agreed with some of the accusations that I read. He had this really strong peace first, never violence approach. And some would say, and they did say that that's naive and only a pie in the sky type of philosopher could ever indulge such an idea. But as I look at what happened to Algeria and not just there, but everywhere else in the world, he seems to make a lot of sense to me. I would say that his ideas were probably ahead of his time in many ways. During his day, 15% of the population was of European origin. Now, obviously, that's a minority, and it's a minority that was imported. Uh, but they're still Algerian people, and that's a lot of people. In his case, he was born there. Yes, he didn't have the same skin tone as the peoples whose ancestors had been there more than just the little two generations that he, his family had been there, but he still called it home. His idea was we need to find a way to make peace, to live together. The idea of the indigenous people was something like that. If you have, you know, not the indigenous tone, get out. And the French obviously had the idea that we're here, we're going to dominate and subjugate all local peoples of all the other ethnic origins. <laughs> Which, of course, really is not a peaceful attitude on anybody's part. No. <laughs> You know, after the end of World War II, uh, which, by the way, over a million soldiers from all over Africa, but uh, mostly North Africa, fought on the European front of that conflict, including many Algerians. Yeah, that was something I didn't realize. Yeah. But after the war, uh, Algerian Muslims demanded and eventually won their independence. Uh, however, independence wasn't simple. The Algerian war was bloody and deadly and long and uh, Algerian independence did not really come until 1962, and uh, almost a million Piedmont fled back to Europe, and France sent hundreds of thousands of soldiers to Algeria to fight against the insurrections over the years. You know, tens of thousands of young men on both sides died. Terrorist tactics were used on both sides. Napalm was even employed. If you recall, that was the uh, toxin of choice that uh, Americans really associate with the war in Vietnam. Yes. There were horrible internment camps, but the death count isn't the only measure of devastation. I mean, by the time Algeria finally proclaimed its independence, 70% of the workforce in Algeria was unemployed, and businesses that had been run by European descendants had been confiscated by the state, uh, but many were not being administered productively, and you know, independence created a power vacuum internally, and Political factions vied for control, and for average people, life was a very difficult struggle. So it's a mess. Uh, but that was the Algeria during Camus' lifetime. You know, he died in 19. 19- 
60. That's just two years before the independence. Yes. And let me add that even into the 1990s and the early 2000s, Algeria has experienced incredible internal violence and civil strife. I mean, it does make Camus' call for peaceful resolution seem more and more reasonable, uh, at least less costly for the average person, which, of course, was his upbringing and, and who cared about, who he cared about protecting. True. And it is Camus' understanding of Algeria that shaped his personal story, his politics, his philosophy, his art. And, you know, as you mentioned, he's a pied noir, but he certainly couldn't be described as a member of any ruling class. I mean, he was born in Algeria to very low-income working-class people and passionately loved his homeland. I think it's important to understand he was not European. However, he was also, in many ways, an outsider in his homeland of Algeria. He was born there, but his people were not indigenous. And that's interesting because of the title of the book, The Stranger. There's so many ways that this title could be the subtitle for the author's life. Now, let me be clear. I'm not suggesting that this is an autobiographical book in any overt sense. He didn't do the things that he's describing. But I will suggest that his experiences gave him this heightened understanding of the feelings that he's trying to communicate. And those, he would say, are, are universal. Marceau also, by the way, which is the title character of the story, was a pen name Camus had used in other writings. So do with that what you will. <laughs> but the experiences of his life did leave him an outsider, not just because of this geopolitical situation. Camus' father died in one of the first battles of World War I, and Camus was only one years old at the time. So the family had to move in with his uncle and their grandmother, and he was fatherless. That's a handicap, as you might expect. But the situation financially wasn't awesome at all. In fact, the family was in total poverty. Here we see this little Camus being another version of an outsider. He's the poor kid. He's the kid with no dad. His mother worked in factories. She was a maid. And she did all kinds of things that poor single moms have to do to make ends meet. This is not something that would inspire a child with family pride. She was illiterate. She was deaf. She had a serious speech impediment that kept her from speaking. These, by the way, were a result of a childhood illness that she had had growing up that had gone untreated. Camus deeply loved his mother, but I've read that she was a distant person emotionally. I can only speculate that because of the circumstances of her life. I don't know, but I can imagine that being deaf and, and not being able to speak and having all that work is a challenge in building relationships and intimacy. Camus said this about his mom later on in his life. He said, when my mother's eyes were not resting on me, I have never been able to look at her without tears springing into my eyes. You know, I also read, although this is getting farther along in Camus' personal story, uh, that he commented when he received the Nobel Prize that his mother was one woman who would never be able to read his speech. I know, and I think it's important to bring his relationship with his mother out because of the famous first line in The Stranger, but we'll get to that in a minute. 
Camus, without any privilege of birth or education, was still brilliant, to the point that he managed to stand out and receive a scholarship, and he attended a very fancy high school there in Algiers. But as you can imagine, he's the poor kid, so yet again, an outsider. The poor kid (laughs) in the rich school. Orwell spoke to that. (laughs) Yes, uh, true, but he was successful there, and more than just academically. I mean, he played soccer, and in fact, he was pretty good at it. Yes, he was the first-string goalie and perhaps might have been a big shot at sports on a bigger level, except at age 17, he contracted tuberculosis, another setback, another way to feel like the outsider, the non-healthy person. I mean, his disease shocked him. Nobody expects to be confronted with potential death at the age of 17, especially an athlete He had to drop out of school. He had to drop out of everything. So I hope you're seeing the trend here. This is a guy who can't catch a break. Uh, That's terrible. And Camus is definitely uh, not the cliched, spoiled, rich kid, privileged thinker, (laughs) you know, who attends elite universities and sits around the Parisian cafes or salons (laughs) discussing uh, personal omniscient theories about existence and the nature of the universe. No, that cliche is more suited to his buddy old Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, although Sartre's ideas, I wouldn't say they're cliches, they're interesting, but just the, the background, in fact. Um, Sartre, by the way, wrote a great explication of The Stranger, but before we get into the Sartre-Camus drama, and they are associated together a lot of times when we talk about existentialism, although not always Uh, on good terms. But before we get to that, I want to keep talking about all the different ways that Camus gets his butt kicked by life. Oh, my gosh. Here's another way. So he shows up in Paris. Uh, Well, he's got an edge to him that's kind of sexy to the upper crust. I mean, he's brilliant, good-looking. He's like the bad boy from the provinces, if if you want to think an old black-and-white movie. (laughs) He's the James Dean of Algeria. Uh, but before, uh, you know, he recovers his health and returns to school. Oh, I forgot to mention. Uh, before any of that, he marries a girl named Simone Heil. She's beautiful, but she has a drug problem. Ooh. <laughs> the marriage goes poorly. Another setback. So he that all happened before he gets to go to Paris. So in 1936, he graduates from school. He gets involved in supporting the Algerian Muslims. Uh, He joins the Communist Party. He creates a theater group. He wants to bring art to the working class. So he's very busy. He's very active. He's very energetic. All of these things. You know, this is interesting. Uh, Camus joins the Communist Party precisely because he doesn't believe in how the French are treating the local people in Algeria. He believes in fairness and equal opportunity and he sees that uh, the power in Algeria is disproportional, and it's obvious to everyone that the French are French are you know really abusing the local populations. And he wants to be part of the solution, and he wants a peaceful solution. He wants maximum freedom for the maximum number of people. All the things that communists were espousing with their words, however, through the war, he eventually changes his attitude towards the communists. Yeah. Uh- When I read that, I thought, oh, does that mean he moves back towards the right? But he doesn't really. I mean, he continues to be a leftist, if you just want to look on his personal views, his entire life. He does believe in the idea of equality. His, the reason he doesn't like the communists because he doesn't believe that they believe that. 
He thinks that when they get in charge, they do many of the same things that the fascists were doing, and they were just using that message to get support. Exactly. And and we see that as a problem in politics for (laughs) all ages. I mean, from antiquity, it's a problem today. Uh, You know, Camus finds Stalin and the communists to be as awful as Hitler and the fascists. And he does not believe the ends ever justifies all the means. And so he eventually became disenfranchised and despised by both the right and the left. Well, you know, looking back with the lens of history, I would say that we should give him credit for that. Uh, But it wasn't popular uh, in 1940. Speaking of 1940, that's the year to get back on track with his story. He's divorced from Simone. He's moved to Paris. But that's not the best time to move to Paris. <laughs> 1940 is the worst time to, to move to Paris. And, you know, France is going to fall to Germany in June of 1940. Um, and there are famous pictures that most of us have seen of the Nazis marching through the Arche de Triomphe. Well, and Camus gets trapped. I mean, he tried to go home, but he's stuck in occupied Paris. And so he does what he can. He takes an active role in the resistance. He literally risks his life the way he can through his journalism. He inspires the people of France to not give in to the Nazis, to hold on to the resistance. His essays from this period are actually published, and people still find them inspirational. If you want to read one, you can Google the almond trees. But... More interesting for us, this is also the time period that he will write the three works that changed his life. First, there's our novella, uh, The Stranger, but then there's also the philosophical companion piece that was published four months after it, in some ways to explain it, called The Myth of Sisyphus, and then there's a play titled Caligula. All three of these works Camus called The Cycle of the Absurd. We want to focus on the stranger. Now, the stranger expresses the feelings of this idea that he's going to call the absurd. But obviously, we can't avoid reading it without the lens of the myth of Sisyphus. Well, you're supposed to read it, and then you're supposed to read the myth of Sisyphus to kind of understand the ideas. But the essay helps explain the impressions or the experience that hopefully you felt when you read the story. You know, in some ways, it makes total sense that Camus would write about the meaninglessness of life in the backdrop of World War II. And, but, you know, in other ways, it's a total paradox. And he doesn't advocate rolling over and surrendering to the Nazis as political writings are trying to instill hope. But while encouraging people to resist fascism, ironically, he's writing a great philosophical work on the idea that there is no hope. <laughs> Mm. I know. And that is how Camus becomes a paradox. In one way, no one understands him. But then in another way, he's the most relatable philosopher most high schoolers will ever read. I actually love his stuff. And I'm not even an atheist, to be honest. (laughs) And I do think we need to point out that Camus is an atheist, or at least an agnostic. And this thinking is uh, predicated on exactly that. And he said this, I do not know whether this world has a meaning that is beyond me, but I do know that I am unaware of this meaning and that for the time being is it impossible for me to know it. What can a meaning beyond my condition mean to me? 
I can understand only in human terms. I understand the things I touch, the things that offer me resistance. And of course, this is a completely rational position to hold, and everyone can understand where he's coming from. He's one of the few philosophers I really wish I could have met, and it's a sad loss that he died so young. We may talk about his untimely death at the end of the series, but this is the point where he writes the book, so I think it's a good spot to break from biography and open the book. Let's read that famous first line and make no mistake about it. It's very famous and recognizable. Gary, in your best Camus voice, would you mind? <laughs> <laughs> My best French accent? I don't know if that would be your best Camus voice at all. <laughs> oh, okay. Maman died today, or yesterday maybe. I don't know. It's the sentence that shocked the world. In a sentence that feels so cold... He uses the personal word of saying mom. He doesn't open up with mother died. He doesn't call her by her first name. In French, mama would be like us saying mummy or mom or mommy. It's a term that kids use for their mom. And yet, look at the rest of it. She died today or yesterday. I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Are you a psycho? Are you a monster? Why would you just blow off the death of your mom? But Marceau isn't a psychopath, and he's not a monster. If he's anything, he's lost. So for the longest time, you've always told me that the author gives away their whole story in the very first sentence, as he just done that. Well, keep reading. If we keep reading the next sentence, uh, we see that maybe he's not a monster, and maybe the nursing home is. The nursing home sent him this telegram, and I got a telegram from the home. Mother deceased, funeral tomorrow, faithfully yours. I mean, that doesn't mean anything, and... Maybe it was yesterday. And, you know, it, it's not cruel, really. It just feels cruel just because it's a telegram and they have to be short. Or, you know, another idea, maybe it's the culture of the area to be so short. Or maybe, maybe it's absurd. I think it is. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> and now we're going. we get to the point. Camus is introducing to us through these very short phrases a feeling we get from our world. At this point, he's not telling us what to think. He's showing us how we feel. Camus' world is not theistic at all. It's not deistic. So that's important to understand. Camus doesn't believe in God, nor does he believe it's rational to believe in God. But he's also, you know, he's not naturalistic or deterministic either. He's not like John Steinbeck, who says there are forces in the world and we're all victims of nature and the laws that govern it, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Camus doesn't even really claim to be existential, although today we would most definitely put him in that very broad category. But he didn't like to call himself an existentialist. You know, those guys get to nitpicking it. You've got the Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and Sartre and Kafka, and, and they are different. And for our purposes, we don't need to decide, you know, which is what. The point Camus is making here, and it's a point that we can understand is that the world is really an absurd place to live. And although we can go through the routine of our daily lives, making ourselves busy, doing things that at the moment we think are really important, there will be moments in our lives, and he would suggest only if we're lucky enough to have them, when we are absolutely hit in the face with an undeniable truth that the world is one heck of an absurdity. And as a young man in his 20s, you could say there's some anger there. (laughs) Well, so once again, the author is going to tell the whole story in the very beginning. Yes, you're right. (laughs) Okay. 
But let me add this. This is a book that will, with all intentionality, offer no commentary or no explanation about anything at all for anything that will happen in the story. But here we're going to receive some of the only words of explanation. And let me remind you, there's a lot of scandal that's going to happen in this book. None of it with explanation. But he does here, he says, that doesn't mean anything. Well, in context, doesn't he mean that it doesn't mean enough for him to know when she died? Yes, of course. But what I think we're supposed to see a little bit beyond that. His mother's death sets off events that will define events. If we're looking for meaning, which of course we shouldn't because there isn't any to be found. (laughs) It's absurd. I know. Although we will find ourselves trying even subconsciously as we go through the events and the story. There's something about our brains that's going to try to find a correlation that we see Camus must be making. He's taking great pains to do so, but he's not. He's actually taking great pains to clearly show that these events and every sentence actually is disconnected. Every action is disconnected from every other action in the story. It's a futile hunt to look for meaning in a book that is meant to teach us that there is no connection between (laughs) events. It is the nature of our existence. And this he will call the absurd. And as soon as we read these first lines, if we're honest, um, we intuitively identify with them, especially if we've lived more than five minutes in this world. We know exactly how this feels. I mean, this book describes a feeling of not being able to feel or to feel an unidentified guilt or you know, to feel impulses that are even self-sabotaging. It's acknowledging feelings that are fair and indeed human to feel. And, you know, there there's a moment in everyone's life, hopefully, if you're not a sociopath or a narcissist, <laughs> when we realize things just don't matter in the grand scheme of things. Uh, and Merceau is experiencing this at the death of his mother. Uh, he describes asking off from work and being made to feel guilty to the point where he literally says in defense of himself, it's not my fault. You know, uh, this guilt feeling is an abstract guilt, and he's aware it's coming from somewhere outside of him, and uh, he's not important enough to matter that his mom is dead. And he goes on to describe his bus ride to the old people's home, and it's remarkably plain. The world is the same. Uh, His mother is dead, and as he says to himself before he catches the bus, it's almost as if my mom weren't dead. After the funeral, though, the case will be closed and everything will have a more official feel to it. I mean, there is a sense he understands the universe, but just doesn't care. Yeah, I want to go back to something you mentioned. That word fault is used on that first page. And in this book where the main character for the whole book will seem so detached from everything, it's strange that his boss has been able to make him feel guilty for something that is entirely not his fault. This is something to take note of, and we're going to revisit this next episode when we talk about this idea of guilt in full, because this is probably the most important idea of the whole text. Marceau does does commit an action that is his fault. We'll see that next episode. Uh, At least we think it's his fault. And then they make us question, well, is it his fault or is it not his fault? Camus is interested in guilt, and he's trying to solve the problem of guilt, So there's your cliffhanger uh, for next (laughs) week. But on to your more important point for the moment. As we read Merceau's recollection of the death and then of the funeral of his mother, you know, there's something to relate with here. 
For one thing, Marcel's mother's death is reduced to a telegram without even a definitive point of time. Uh, both she and he are just specks in the universe, and the, the death of a speck is of no consequence to anybody. I totally remember the moment I understood this about myself. Uh, when I graduated from high school, my parents sent me back to America. As you know, I grew up in Brazil. And as a child, I thought I was the center of the world uh, for my family. I, and then I went in from one day to being somebody in a community and in a family to being a nobody from nowhere. I was a speck. I remember showing up at college in Arkansas. I didn't know anyone there. And I went to a dance that first week on campus. I drove myself to the skating ring. That's where they had dances there. And I wanted to make friends. So I walk in. No one greeted me. No one talked to me. No one invited me to dance. Uh, I tried to go up to a couple of people, but it was all strange. They knew each other. I was invisible. I was unwanted. I was a speck. I remember being overwhelmed and just walked out. Nobody even knew I had been there. Wow. <laughs> you know, everyone has those moments, uh, and there could be more than one. At some point, many of us will all of a sudden become a keenly aware of a certain level of pointlessness to almost every human enterprise. You know, hence the myth of Sisyphus, which Camus thinks is the perfect metaphor for our everyday existence. Yeah, so much so that he gave his essay the title. Uh, we didn't really have time to talk about Sisyphus, but you know that was in the Odyssey that we read just uh, a while back. Uh, and he's a guy Odysseus meets in the underworld. So, Gary, by way of reference, let's pull out the old Odyssey book and let's read about this guy who got into so much trouble with Zeus, he has a punishment we talk about today. Let's read it. When I witnessed the torture of Sisyphus as he wrestled with a huge rock with both hands, Bracing himself and thrusting with his hands and feet, he pushed the boulder uphill to the top. But every time, as he was about to send it toppling over the crest, its sheer weight turned it back, and once again towards the plain, the pitiless rock rolled down. So once more, he had to wrestle with the thing and push it up, while the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust rose high above his head. <laughs> Wow. So we have this image of a guy pushing up a rock to the top of the mountain. When it gets to the top, it rolls back down, and he's condemned to do this for all of eternity. Well, for Camus, this is a, a metaphor for everyday routine. I mean, a, a pointless sameness over and over. And to use Camus' words, it's the getting up, the tram, four hours of work, meal, sleep, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, in the same routine. And, and for Camus, after a while, it all just seems absurd. So it's not just in the big moments where we recognize the absurd, but it's really in the routine of daily life. Well, indeed. And that's true in other places. But in the beginning of The Stranger, you know, here it feels a little overwhelming at the start. Mama died today or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. If I read it this way... It reminds me of the fact that it doesn't matter. Her life doesn't matter. Her death doesn't matter. The fact that I loved her doesn't matter. The fact that we're here doesn't matter. It's pretty depressing. I mean, this is an expression of lostness. Indeed. And, you know, that's where uh, Camus starts his philosophical treatise, uh, which he titles and wrote to explain the stranger, you know, the myth of Sisyphus. So let me read the first line of that famous essay. And this is what it reads. 
There is but one truly serious philosophical problem, and that is suicide. So uh, Camus goes on to say that the feeling of absurdity can strike any man in the face. And we're to feel like we're being slapped in the face by Merceau's sense of absurdity. And I think it's important to understand, um, as clearly Camus uh, differentiates, that the feeling of the absurd really isn't the same as the idea of the absurd. That kind of makes it confusing. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of absurdity going on there. Pretty immediately, it makes you tired uh, and depressed if you think about it for long. You know, Sartre calls it hopeless lucidity, which I think is a nice little oxymoron. It's a tiresome feeling. And when we read Merceau, he basically just wants to sleep all the time. The idea being that there comes a moment when you become lucid or aware of this certain hopelessness. And that is the beginning point. If you read the book and you begin to feel disoriented, that's a good thing. (laughs) You're on the right track. If your next feeling is boredom, now you're really getting the point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a lot of irony there. So we're supposed to be bored by reading this? I mean, I guess every student can identify with that. But, uh, you know, in fact, I think that's happened to me in lots of books (laughs) that are not about the existential meaning of life. Uh, True. But the scene Camus goes on to describe in Chapter 1 is described in as brief a way as humanly possible. When you read the book, you think, you know, open it up, it's about a mom and a son. You think it's going to be about their relationship, about maybe overcoming his death. But really, that's only about 12% of the whole book. In reality, uh, the death sequence has nothing to do with anything else. And to make it connect is arbitrary. It's making arbitrary connections between the funeral and the events that follow. This will be an obvious point of absurdity. I was thinking that's where it was going, towards Uh absurdity. And, you know, here are a few of the sentences as Camus writes them. And uh, they sound like a journal someone's keeping for themselves when they have to document their actions for a court case or something. He says it like this. It was very hot. I ate at the restaurant at Celeste's, as usual. Everybody felt very sorry for me. I ran so as not to miss the bus. I slept almost the whole way. The home was two kilometers from the village. I walked them. (laughs) That's not very flowery. No, exactly. All these are very short, isolated sentences that have no connection with anything. There's not a connection made between one sentence and the other. They do not explain each other like you might expect in a typical plot progression. They're just declarative observations. And somehow we arrive at a feeling of lucid hopelessness. Another feature of the text that I want to point out, because it's going to become incredibly important next episode, is this emphasis on the sun. When I read this book, I got the impression that Algiers must be this incredibly hot place with a boiling sun, you know, like Memphis. Yes. <laughs> uh, but I wanted to know, so I looked it up, and it turns out the weather in Algiers is pretty much perfect. It rarely gets excessively cold in the winter, like the 40s or 50s, but it does not get mercifully hot in the summer. It hovers in the 80s. That's comfortable. But in the book, that's not so. We feel an intensity of heat, and it's stifling. The sun in this book is oppressive. In fact, we can use Merceau's exact words. He says this, 
But today with the sun bearing down, making the whole landscape shimmer with heat, it was inhuman and oppressive. That's how he describes it. It's a presence. The sun is a presence during the procession and the funeral. It makes sweat pour down Merceau's face. So we're going to walk with him hand in hand, this absurd man, Merceau. And Merceau undeniably is the absurd man. Sartre will explain this if you read his explication. The absurd man does not explain. He describes. He doesn't prove anything. And so with no reason, he experiences the sun. It just bears down. The glare from the sky is unbearable. It gets to the point where it makes Merceau feel lost. He literally says that. Here's another description. Let's read that one. All of it, the sun, the smell of leather and horse dung from the hearse, the smell of varnish and incense, and my fatigue after a night without sleep was making it hard for me to see or think straight. You know, this is where reading the myth of Sisyphus is helpful. Uh, for Camus, the absurdity of life comes from realizing um, a few undeniable things about the world, and this is regardless of your worldview. Uh, number one, there is something in the heart of man that really does seek to find meaning uh, and find out that we are not absurd. We are wired to not be absurd, and we as non-absurd people look to find meaning. It's what we do, but then there's the second reality. There's something in the arbitrary nature of the way life works that defeats us. And um, we will lose and we know it. We desire immortality, but we will die. Life is rigged against us. Nature is going to win. The absurdity of life will win. Uh, You know, good things will happen for bad people and bad things will happen to good people. And these are truths and certainly obvious during Camus' days in occupied France. Uh, I would say for sure. Uh, To use his words, the world itself is not reasonable, and that is all that can be said. So that is the beginning point. Now what? (laughs) (laughs) And once again, I would like to point out another thing we've always said here, too, and that is writers write out of their experience. Um, In the myth of Sisyphus, Camus talks about suicide, and he does mean physical suicide for sure, but physical suicide is not such a simple thing to understand, and it's uh, not the only way to kill yourself. He's going to use the term philosophical suicide, and this is something that Camus is really against. But he thinks that most of us will actually commit philosophical suicide. You know, Benjamin Franklin thought so, too. I've got an interesting (laughs) Benjamin Franklin quote. He said, many people die at 25 but aren't buried until they are 75. Yikes. That's kind of a Camus <laughs> absurdist thing coming from Ben Franklin. You know. uh, in other words, to not face the reality that life is absurd, they choose to live dishonest lives. And uh, we lie to ourselves about almost everything. Uh, we can use God as philosophical suicide. Um, if you can't explain it, then put it on God, you know, or I'm doing this because it is the will of God. It, it's a simple answer to a very complicated question. But if you can just chalk everything up to God, then that's really an easy answer. Uh, and it's a way to stop asking the question that is going to remind us that we're absurd. Uh, Camus focuses on religion quite a bit. 
But religion certainly isn't the only thing in this world that can bring meaninglessness for the absurd man. Uh, I would suggest that in the year 2022, we literally are using drugs and we're using entertainment um, in the same way. In a rich country like the United States, we use the pursuit of wealth to find meaning. And more recently, uh, we've used morality, not religious morality, but secular morality. And we parade it over social media, uh, proclaiming this platform or this or the other one. But in reality, it's all really pretty absurd. And Camus says we have a mind that desires meaning and the world disappoints in given that meaning. And so we walk on with Marceau. We experience with him the very basic feelings of life. My mom's dead should mean something, but it doesn't. It's just inconvenient and it's uncomfortable. It makes Marceau hot. It makes him tired. We experience through him, the absurd. With Merceau, we experience what we glean from our senses, but not a whole lot more than that. In chapter one, we experience a lot of discomfort, but in the next episode, we're going to talk about sex, food, cigarettes. There are other strong physical sensations besides the sun, although that doesn't go away. We will watch Merceau be pushed around and and do things that personally I find morally repulsive. He's not a part of anything. He's just a reactor. He's into nothing. He's not a soccer fan. He's not a businessman. He's not even a film buff. He's quite the outsider in almost every way. Although I will say, he doesn't seem to have trouble getting a girlfriend. Hmm. That's not absurd to him, apparently. <laughs> but she does. I mean, I think she's kind of attracted to him because he's a weirdo. So maybe there is just that. He is a stranger. He is l'étranger. <laughs> <laughs> Your French pronunciation is so much better. Uh, but I would like to say, Christy, at this point, you are not leaving us a lot to look forward to. I mean, this seems like we're heading toward nihilism and a foregone conclusion that that we know the answer to the suicide question, and it's not a good one. I know. It does feel that way in chapter one. And I do admit there's a lot more boredom in head, and he has more poor decision-making or lack of decision-making, I will say, in his immediate future. But let me end with this. If this were all that Camus had to say, he would not be interesting. In fact, he would be in a high school, you know, poetry journal. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend in high school. He was French, by the way, honestly. This is an aside. His name was Lohan. And Lohan was a nihilist. And he's a nihilist at age 18. And he would go around saying this to me all the time. I can still hear him in my head. He would have three cigarettes in his mouth. And we were friends. And I'd fuss at him about smoking. He loved to smoke. But he would say to me, you die, you're dead, so what? <laughs> With that accent? (laughs) Yes. Uh, But that's not Camus. Camus never lost faith in justice, the life of the spirit, the power of truth, and he rejected nihilism completely. He actually said this, and I quote, All of us among the ruins are preparing a renaissance beyond the limits of nihilism. He said this later, No, everything is not summed up in negation and absurdity. We know this, but we must first posit negation and absurdity because they are what our generation has encountered and what we must take into account. And so we begin 
with the uncomfortable sun glaring down, making us hot, sweaty, sleepy, and reminding us that nature always wins. Yes, that's the idea. The absurd reality starts with honesty, and that is the opposite of philosophical suicide. Hmm. You know, negation and absurdity are just the beginning. I mean, it's, it takes a certain amount of courage to do what he's asking us to do. Uh, the alternative is the Marceau of part one, the absurd man. And as you said, he's not really that likable. <laughs> not really. Well, thanks for being with us today as we go deep into the world of absurdity. Uh, We ask that you uh, follow us on our social media, communicate with us, check us out on our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We have merchandise. We have shirts and cups and stickers and banners and all kinds of fun things. Uh, We appreciate your support. Thanks for being with us. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.